Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Nihar Bakta. He's the CMO of Aristia Therapeutics. And we're going to talk about uh, one condition uh, called gout that they're working on. So, Dr. Bakta, thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I really appreciate your taking the time to to chat about gout. Yeah, no problem. Um, Tell me a bit about your background, if you would, and and how you got to uh, be the CMO of Aristia. Certainly. So I'm a trained kidney specialist. I'm actually a pediatric kidney specialist. My training was in UCLA for my pediatric nephrology fellowship, where I work predominantly on kidney disorders as well as kidney transplantation. So a lot of my work is related to the immune system. And I got into the pharmaceutical industry about 15 years ago when I took a role with Roche Pharmaceuticals in their nephrology group. And then I subsequently moved to Bristol-Myers Squibb and worked in a few different spaces, primarily cardiovascular, diabetes, and then back in the immunology space, helping to get a molecule approved for kidney transplantation. And then I came out to San Diego about eight years ago when I joined a company called Ardea Biosciences. And that company was developing molecules for the treatment of gout. And we helped to get a couple of molecules approved while I was there. Subsequent to that, I worked at a couple of other companies and I've been the chief medical officer here at Aristea for about the last two and a half years. Really excited about the work we're doing. We're working on on a molecule that modulates the immune system. Specifically, it works on uh, impacting neutrophils, uh, and we're targeting the treatment of diseases that are potentiated by neutrophils. Yeah, the reason why I wanted to ask you in particular about gout, I had another conversation with another person at Aristea. A lot of the work you guys are doing is very interesting, but he mentioned that uh, you're particularly working on on gout as well or have experience. I've I've experienced it once, and it was awful. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you about the condition and what what you guys are doing at Aristea to work with it. Certainly. So it's 
really challenging condition for the patients who experience it. As you indicated, it's, it's quite painful. Patients who have gout really are suffering a lot. And I'm, I don't know how much you touched upon it in your interview with uh, James, uh, our, our CEO, but I know his father had gout. He saw firsthand the effects of, of patients who have gout. And these patients really have a quality of life. And the challenge is, is that you know, there are therapies that have been used for a long period of time for these patients, uh, but there are still some patients who continue to experience significant debilitating effects, specifically from their gout flares, as well as from having uh, high levels of uric acid. That's really the predominant problem in patients with gout is that they have high levels of uric acid in their blood. Why does that happen? Why do people have high uric acid levels? Where does it come from? Uric acid is really interesting. There's, there's two issues in these patients. There's an issue with production, right? So uric acid is something that your body naturally produces and you, to some extent, a byproduct of some of the foods you eat. So you'll see that there are some foods that you, if you have gout, you're told to avoid, but additionally, you need to get rid of that uric acid. And for some patients, they have a really challenging time kind of getting rid of that uric acid as well. Now, the medicines that are used to treat gout are really designed to either help you decrease the production of that uric acid, lowering therapies, or they help you to get rid of that uric acid. And that those are really the ways in which patients who have gout are managed. The other thing that happens in these patients who have gout is that uric acid, when you have too much of it in your body, it forms these crystal deposits. These crystal deposits in some patients manifest as flares. And the flares that, that they get are the really painful swelling of the joints that patients can get, you know, they can have a really challenging time with managing that. And so there's specific therapies that can help you once you've gotten that inflammation so bad that you've kind of recruited the rest of your immune system in there. And one of those treatments is colchicine. That may be a, a, a treatment you've heard of before. Uh, there are other medicines that people also use to help treat acute gout flares, such as you know, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, as well as some patients will also get steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. How can you reduce the uric acid in someone's bloodstream? Yeah, so uric, there are a few recommendations that clinicians have, right? So I think for patients who have their first gout flare, for example, there are a lot of recommendations for patients who have their very first gout flare. And, and it's generally recommended that you actually don't take a medicine, to, to a urate lowering therapy, if you've had only one gout flare in your entire life so far, even if your uh, uric acid levels might be on the higher side. For those patients, you know, what they recommend is to some extent lifestyle, modification of lifestyle factors, if you're able to, limiting alcohol intake, limiting purine intake. So purine is one of the things that ultimately can help to create uric acid, you know, limiting certain things like high fructose corn syrup, Things to that effect are, are conditionally recommended by, by clinicians, as well as a weight loss program is also conditionally recommended for patients. But for many patients, especially if they've had another flare or if they're having multiple flares, then you have to start considering, well, what types of treatment should we think about for these patients? And those treatments, generally speaking, you know, take the form of those urate-lowering therapies that, um, that we discussed. Now, you know, those therapies typically involve taking a medicine, usually a pill. So for patients, one of the most commonly prescribed urate-lowering therapies is allopurinol. That's a medicine that actually is called a xanthine oxidase inhibitor. 
it kind of blocks one of the processes that helps to create uric acid and it decreases the amount of uric acid in the blood. It's really interesting though, because patients who start a urate lowering therapy are actually paradoxically at an increased risk of developing a gout flare. So the very thing that, you know, they've had multiple flares that you're treating them for, once you start treating them for their uric acid, you actually put them at a little bit higher risk of developing a gout flare. And that's because what happens is, is in in patients, by the time they come to a a clinician and they start a urate lowering therapy, uh, what ultimately happens is that they've actually had some microcrystal deposits already in certain parts of their body, usually their joints and other places like that. And when you start remodeling those, uh, because you're decreasing the amount of uric acid production, you can put those patients at risk for gout flare. So typically, there's a recommendation that patients should start on some form of a prophylactic therapy, whether it be colchicine or NSAIDs as they initiate urate lowering therapy for usually three to six months after they, at the initiation of that urate lowering therapy. And that really is important to help keep these patients from actually getting worse due to the treatment that they've initiated. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Have you seen people with diet alone been able to reduce their uric acid levels? Mm-hmm. You said some people can't clear it or they're very bad at clearing it. Any reason why? Yeah. So, you know, there are obviously some genetic factors involved in terms of your in terms of any, you know, individual and their ability to generate as well as clear uric acid. And in talking with the clinicians who, who take care of these patients, you know, that they will always talk, talk to you about, you know, the fact that some of their patients are high level athletes who are in prime condition, who have gout. It's not just a uniform condition that, you know, people who are on the heavier side or people who, you know, don't manage their diet appropriately can get. Generally speaking, that, you know, what you see is that, you know, those types of patients tend to have some genetic issues and not all of those have really been fully elucidated yet, but that really impact their ability to clear uric acid appropriately. And so, you know, those patients do need additional treatment, you know, even with a very healthy diet. There are other people though, especially again, early on in, in when they first develop their, their, their symptoms of gout, who uh, can absolutely manage their diet appropriately and have the ability to, to uh, improve their gout, you know, early on. So if you talk to most clinicians, you know, the first time that they, it's funny, if you talk to people who take care of patients with gout, they'll tell you, they'll all tell you the same thing, which is if I were to get gout and I had one flare, I would treat that flare. And then I would go systematically through what I'm eating, what's going on and try to fix that first before I started taking a therapy. Because for many patients, that can be the curative cause. That can be curative. Not for all patients, obviously, but for a lot of patients, it can be the cause. And if you talk to these physicians, they'll tell you the same thing. If it were them, they would systematically go through their diet first before they would start taking medicine. So what's next for gout research? 
if you guys are doing any gout therapeutics, are, are there just additional uric acid inhibitors or lowerers or, you know, what's yeah, the so new thinking on how to work with it? That's a great question. So, you know, I think one of the important things here is that there are, you know, really good approved therapies that are early in line for the treatment for urate lowering therapy. So as I indicated, allopurinol is one of the very common therapies. It's a challenge for some patients. There's actually a specific gene that should be tested for. It's called HLA-B5801. And the reason why you want to potentially start testing these patients, testing for these genetic problems in some patients prior to initiating allopurinol in these patients is that they can actually have a significant problem in terms of it puts them at, at a significant risk for some side effects associated with initiation of, of allopurinol. Now, there are other medications as well. There's a medication known as babuxostat, which is a little bit stronger form of a xanthine oxidase inhibitor. There are another medication that's recommended for really those really challenging cases of gout called peglodicase. Now, those are all urate lowering therapies. What we had discussed is that, you know, when a patient has a flare, there are some treatments for those flares as well. Colchicine is one of those uh, treatments. Colchicine is a really interesting molecule. It's a microtubule inhibitor. Basically, it can stop the influx of those cells that are causing the inflammation and the gout flare. And that's actually one of the, uh, the, the medicine that we're working on at Aristea is a CXCR2 inhibitor. That molecule is able to block the migration of neutrophils from the bone marrow out into the periphery and into those sites of inflammation. And some research that we had done while we were working at Ardea Biosciences, that previous company I, I mentioned to you that was working in gout, we'd found that there seemed to be a very nice synergistic effect between CXCR2 inhibitors as well as colchicine in terms of decreasing levels of inflammation. Now, our company is not currently developing that molecule for gout. However, it is an area that we are uh, thinking about exploring moving forward. Gout is unfortunately a somewhat challenging area to develop new medicines in from the perspective of just how large the clinical trials need to be, as well as you know the high level, the high burden, right, for these patients in terms of from a safety and efficacy perspective. And, and our company is really focused on rare uh, and orphan diseases, that's where we feel like we may be able to have maybe a little bit stronger impact uh, for these you know, diseases that don't have as many therapies available. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Within gout, uh, there is there a, uh, again, a rare side. It seems like you alluded to it. Are you developing therapeutics for the cases of gout that just can't be treated with current, you know, current medications? So with this molecule, like again, as I indicated, it's a CXCR2 inhibitor, it, it may be beneficial for patients who have flares. I think the real problem for, for the type of patient you're describing, those rarer patients who have more challenging cases of gout where they're not being able to be appropriately managed with existing urate lowering therapies, there, there absolutely is a high unmet medical need. And there are a few companies out there that are actually looking to develop molecules to help treat those patients. There's a different as I alluded to earlier, there, there are two components, right, to having high levels of uric acid in your blood. There's the production component, which is what allopurinol and febuxostat address. And then there's actually the excretion component. How do you get rid of that uric acid? And there are some companies that are developing molecules to try to help you get rid of that uric acid via helping you actually pee it out. So you can 
impact a specific receptor in your kidney that can allow you to uh, increase the amount of uric acid that you excrete via your urine. And so there are a few companies that are, are specifically looking to develop molecules that would work via that pathway. We actually worked on uh, one of those molecules while I was at our day at biosciences. And, you know, we think that that's a very good pathway potentially, as long as you can find the right balance of efficacy and safety in those patients. And so we know that there's, you know, that there is an unmet medical need for that smaller proportion of patients who, who don't respond. And we've, you know, I'm sure that there will be new molecules on the horizon for those patients. What happens if someone has high uric acid for months and years, even if they, you know, whether they do or don't have gout, what does that do to them? That's a really interesting question. So there is condition called asymptomatic hyperuricemia. And it is something that has been a topic of debate for a number of years, right? So you can have high levels of uric acid in your blood and not and never get gout. And people don't really know what, what that means for you in terms of your long-term health. There still hasn't been a lot of work there. We do know a couple of things. We do know that, you know, patients who have, who develop uric acid kidney stones or patients who have chronic kidney disease, who have, you know, failure of their kidneys over time, they seem to be, you know, a higher proportion of those subjects may have higher levels of uric acid in their blood. But in terms of, for a lot of other patients, it's not fully known whether or not you should actually treat that high level of uric acid, whether it's a symptom or a cause. And so that's an area of, of debate. I do know that the current guidelines for, you know, for gout management do not recommend treating asymptomatic patients. So someone who's never had a flare, even if you're kind of by proxy found to have had, you know, through happenstance have been found to have a high level of uric acid. So it's still an, an interesting area because we don't know what really happens to those patients. We know in someone who has gout, that's a clear sign that uric acid is at such a high level that you're actually forming these microcrystal deposits. For asymptomatic hyperuricemia, I think it's a, a, it's a little less well understood. What happens to people that get repeated bouts of gout? Where do the crystals go? Do they resolve? And Again, yeah. over time, if they keep getting it, what happens? Yeah. So people who are not well controlled with their gout can have a lot of sequelae from that gout. One of the key areas is obviously, you know, having recurrent flares, swelling, inflammation in the joints that can lead to a lot of problems just with damage to the joints, right? And, you know, it can lead to challenges walking, activities of daily living are impacted. They can also develop these large deposits in their joints and on their tendons called tophus or tophi. And those are these large uh, deposits that can ultimately erode uh, the surrounding tissue. And that can, again, be very debilitating for these patients. And for some patients who are not well-treated, as I indicated, you know, they can actually go on to develop some forms of kidney failure over a long, long period of time. And as such, for those patients who have gout and who also have chronic kidney disease, it's absolutely recommended that they start taking you know, therapy to lower their uric acid over time, because that can potentially help them with delaying the onset of chronic kidney disease, potentially. Okay. Um, so you said there was a drug or two in the, in the pipeline or a small molecule that you're working on. What does the pipeline look like for Aristea for the next, you know, let's say five or so years in terms of gout? Yeah. So as I indicated, our company is not currently working with our CXCR2 inhibitor in gout right now. Uh, we mm. currently only have one asset at Aristea. 
And I apologize, I wasn't clear before. I was indicating that there are some other companies out there that are doing work in the gout space specifically. You know, there's a local company in San Diego, Arthrosy Therapeutics, that's actually just initiated a phase two study in patients with gout for a molecule that works to help lower your uric acid by actually helping you pee out some of that uric acid. So there are companies that are working kind of in that more challenging space. You know, that's not, again, where Aristea is at. We don't really have any molecules in the gout pipeline. Yeah, I appreciate you coming though, because you're still providing a service by talking about this for people that are suffering from it. So, you know, regardless, you and Aristea are doing a good thing by doing this. So I want to tell you, thank you. Appreciate it. That's really our mission, right? Our goal is to try to help patients in whatever way that we can. And, you know, obviously I'm sure there are patients out there suffering with gout who listen to your podcast, who want to understand a little bit more about their condition, as well as are looking for therapies, especially if they're not well controlled. And my strong recommendation for any of those patients would be really, you should talk to your healthcare providers. And, you know, if if you're not under good control, there are ways to try to get you under better control. And there are a lot of things that your healthcare provider can talk to you about in terms of, you know, potential other therapies or lifestyle modifications or wherever you are in that spectrum of, of, of having gout. You know, we feel very strongly at Ariste and I feel personally very strongly that, you know, patients really need to open in good dialogue with their healthcare providers so that we can try to you know, improve healthcare for all of these patients. Yeah. And last question or so is, so you, you said Aristea works on more rarer diseases. What are some of the top diseases that you guys are working on and where can people find out more about Aristea in general? Uh, thanks, Richard. So, you know, we are working with our CXCR2 antagonists. We are this year initiating five different phase two clinical trials across a number of different diseases. So, Our lead indication at where we've generated the most data is in a rare dermatologic condition, skin condition called palmoplantar pustulosis. This is a horrible condition for the patients because they develop these sterile pustules on the palms of the hands and the soles of their feet. And they occur in these flares and they happen chronically for these patients. So typically what ends up happening is that, you know, if they're not well controlled and many of these patients are not, especially the ones who are moderate to severe can, you know, that have real impact to their activities of daily living. You can imagine if you're, you know, can't use your hands or walking is, you know, even walking would be quite painful if you're developing pustules on your hands and feet chronically over time. So that's where where our lead indication is, where we we actually have just initiated a larger study to evaluate that molecule. We've done a previous smaller study that had shown some really nice signs of efficacy. But we're also looking at a number of other orphan diseases. We're initiating a study in a rare disease called familial Mediterranean fever. This is a challenging disease that actually starts usually in childhood, adolescence, where the patients get significant inflammation, usually in their abdominal area associated with high fevers, but it can be in any area. They can have uh, chest pains associated with it. They can have joint pains associated with it. They can develop rashes associated with it. And these attacks happen you know, pretty consistently in these patients. So they will have you know, one to two attacks a month Many of these patients can be well-controlled with uh, colchicine, which is that medicine we talked about a little bit earlier, but there's a proportion of those patients who are not well-controlled with colchicine. And we're looking at our molecule, our, our CXCR2 antagonist, RIS4721, in combination with colchicine to see if we can help those patients. We're also looking at another rare disease called Bichette's disease, which is an interesting autoimmune disease that we know is associated with neutrophils. It actually causes a vasculitis. 
And that vasculitis can impact almost every organ system in the body. But for many patients, they develop these horrible mouth ulcers, which tend to not get better. The treatment for that condition is also colchicine. And we think that we may be able to help patients in combination with colchicine there. We're also looking at two other interesting conditions with RIST 4721. One of those is ulcerative colitis. That's a condition wherein patients can have significant inflammation of their GI tract. And so, you know, within the inflammatory bowel disease space, that's a challenging area because there are not very many oral therapies. And so one of our partners is actually working to develop that molecule in that disease. And then finally, we're looking at another skin condition called hydradenitis suprativa, which affects a lot of patients. Almost there in the United States alone, there may be close to a million patients with that condition. And in that, we're conducting a study to evaluate if our molecule helps those patients. They develop these really painful nodules in their axilla and other areas. And we think that our molecule, based on the mechanism of action, may be able to help those patients. So we're really excited about all of the work we're getting kicked off this year with RIS 4721 and excited to see if, you know, across these indications, we can help some patients. Excellent. Well, Nihar, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, what's Aristea's website is what? Thank you. I know you'd ask me that. Um, it's aristeatx.com and Aristea is spelled A-R-I-S-T-E-A. So it's A-R-I-S-T-E-A-T-X.com. If you want to learn any more about uh, RIS4721 or Aristea, please go to our website. And then if you want to learn any more about any of the conditions I, I just talked about, you know, we'll have a little bit of information there. And if if any of your listeners are, are interested in learning more about any of the diseases, we do have some links on our website that can help you understand a little bit more about that as well. Well, very good. All right. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. You have a great rest of your day and have a nice weekend. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.